Thanks for joining us on Fresh Faith. We're excited to bring you a special season of the podcast. Ron and former Pittsburgh Steeler Tunch Ogan have worked alongside one another for years. You may remember Tunch on some previous episodes of the podcast. A while back, they teamed up to do a special series on the Journey Radio called Biblical Manhood. This series has been one of the most well-received series, and so we knew we just had to bring it to you on the podcast. You want to be God's man in your marriage, but just what does that mean? Is it spending time with your wife or spending time providing for her? And are those things mutually exclusive? That's what Ron Moore and Tudge Ilkin focus on in today's podcast. They begin to look at the godly husband and what it means to be a servant leader at home. Welcome to a special edition of The Journey as we continue to drill down on some of the real issues that men face every day. Joining me for this special series is Tunch Ilkin. Tunch is a pastor of men's ministry at the Bible Chapel in Pittsburgh. And Tunch, today we want to talk about a man and his marriage. Now, you are a former All-Pro Steeler. And every time someone thinks of a Steeler, right. they think of Super Bowls. How many Super Bowls have the Steelers? Six. Six. And so when we come next time, if you'd bring one of your Super Bowl rings, I want to see it. Ow. You know, Ron's busting on me because the Steelers won four Super Bowls in six years. I got there in 1980 after the last Super Bowl, which was 79, then played 14 years, and the Steelers went back to another Super Bowl. Not that I'm sensitive about that, but why don't you give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice all over it? I have no Super Bowl ring. Hey, but remember last time we were talking about identity? That doesn't identify me. That doesn't validate me. I'm beyond that. Every time you do the lemon juice thing, Miracle Max, right? That, Miracle Max. Go back to Miracle Max. That's right. That's right. He's, my, he's my hero, Billy Crystal. Okay, so Tunch, guys stand up, right? Right. They're in their tux. They're looking good. They look into the eyes of the love of their life, and they say something to this effect. I promise to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. And I promise to be faithful to you, forsaking all others until death us do part. And yet, yes, 50%. Of those who say that will not keep that commitment. Right. 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Why is that? You work with guys all the time. Right. How can a guy, stand-up guy, right. how can he make that commitment and then throw in the towel? Let me just preface what I'm about to say that it takes two. But I think what today's culture and generation says about us is it is really easy to bail. It's just easy to quit. Guys are not willing to fight for their marriage. I've taught through several of John Eldridge's books, one of them being Wild at Heart. In Wild at Heart, Eldridge says that every man is hardwired for a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, and an adventure to go on. And his focus on the beauty to rescue is men think that the battle for the heart of the beauty ends at I do. And he said even in his own life, he didn't realize that he had to continue to fight for his marriage. And he has a great quote in there. He said, I was interested in being the knight. I wanted to be the hero. I wanted to be the knight. But the problem was that I wasn't willing to bleed. And so we tend to think that marriages are just going to happen. But we've got to fight for our marriage. We have to continue pursuing the beauty And a lot of guys, and I've heard it said several times by men, I didn't realize 
that pursuing the beauty was going to be this tough. I didn't realize that marriage was going to take a lot of work. And so as a result of that, men stop trying. And when they stop trying, the wife stops trying. And if the beauty doesn't feel pursued, she feels like, and these are Eldridge's words, she still feels like she's locked in the tower. But the night that was coming for stopped coming. And so his question is this, and I agree with this, is did you think you could have the beauty or you could keep the beauty without the battle? And guys don't realize that that pursuit really should not end, not if we want to have a good marriage. And again, we want to preface what we say when we're talking about a marriage or a failed marriage by saying it's always two people. Right. It's never one person's fault. One person may have the affair at the end. I understand that. And yet along the way, Things have not happened that need to happen to keep that marriage intact. Let's talk about God's word on commitment because, again, what you say is so true because think about all the things you do when you're dating your hoped-to-be, at that point, wife. I mean, you go overboard on some things. You'll do anything. You'll take out time. You'll make all kinds of sacrifices. And then when you say, I do, guys, then go back to work, do their thing, and then the very things that we did to win the love of our wives, we stopped doing after marriage. I mean, there's a real irony to that. Don't you think the pursuit stops? There's a complacency that happens when you do that. And I just find that so ironic that why would I stop pursuing the one who said I do, knowing human nature, knowing that there's a battle for the hearts of our wives, knowing that there's a battle for our heart, knowing... Our battle's not against flesh and blood. We're fighting the dark forces of evil. We're fighting the culture. We're fighting our own flesh. And so why do we think that our battle for our wives and for our marriages would stop with I do? We talk in our marriage enrichment classes a lot about dating, continuing dating. And it sounds so basic, right? But when people get married, they stop dating they stop having fun together they stop again doing the things that cause them to fall in love in the first place whenever i counsel couples that i'm going to marry protect that date night like it is the lifeblood of your marriage because guess what it is you've got to keep that freshness and that focused time where there are no kids and there's no in-laws and there's no friends when it's just the two of you and really that's where that romance can continue and and also the friendship just the sexual intimacy and the romance will not carry the day it is that friendship that develops on date night i would always tell sharon i don't just love you i like you i like hanging out with you and that's part of building that as well let's talk about god's word on commitment here's what god says about commitment regarding marriage Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, it's repeated by Christ in the Gospels, by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That word united to is a beautiful description of commitment. It's used two other times in Scripture. One time it's used to describe the skin clinging to the bones, and that pictures a union. Mm -hmm. It's used another time, and I love this story. There's a warrior in 1 Samuel, who has fought so long and so hard that his hand is frozen to his sword. And that's the word that God uses when he talks about commitment. You are to be united to your wife. You fight so long and hard for them, you can't let go. It's impossible to move your fingers from that sword. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, 
the Pharisees that came to test him, and they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? He said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, he repeats this verse, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And I always emphasize this in wedding ceremonies. I look at the couple and say, you know what? Beautiful ceremony. You've invited guests. This is all great. Mm -hmm. But you got to know that the vows you say here are vows you're saying to God. And your marriage is on record in heaven. God is joining you together today. Tunch, I don't believe marriages explode. Like there's not one thing that just causes a marriage to blow out. Instead, it's like a slow leak. And then after a while, left untended, it goes flat. And then too many people are unwilling to put in the work it takes. And marriage is work to get that tire aired back up or to keep it aired up in the first place. So a guy comes to you, right? And he says, in essence, the tires on the marriage vehicle are flat. Here's what guys will say. You know, it's just too far gone. It's not worth it. I'm not happy. I'm entitled to some happiness. Yeah, doesn't God want me happy? Yeah, then I always go, where does it say that? (laughs) Or a guy will come into my office and has allowed this slow leak to happen for the past 10 years. And then goes back and starts making a change for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And they go, I can't believe she's not responding. I've changed three weeks into this. He's husband of the year now. Then once again, it always takes two. But this whole idea of one flesh, that means not allowing anyone to come in between you and your wife. Not family members, not your mother and father, not your buddies, not the people in the workplace, but to really focus on one another. And so I always say, man, look, number one, God has called you to love this woman until death separates you guys. And that doesn't mean only in easy times, but it means in tough times as well. And so when a guy wants to bail on it, I remind them of the responsibility that God has given them. And I said, look, if you end up in divorce, there is going to be damage. Just look into the eyes of your children and the impact. And they go, oh, it's better to be apart than in a house with two parents that are fighting. I go, no, that's not better. And also the other thing is God calls us to holiness, not happiness. And somehow we get this thing reversed and going, well, I deserve to be happy. No, I need to be following God. And I immediately start saying, don't quit. Stay after it. Scenarios like this always haunt me. So here's a couple, great house, great car, got all the trappings that make them look successful. The guy is a workaholic. He's building his business because guys want to build their business, right? right? Because that's where his identity is. She's challenged by that. She's kind of raising the family alone and got some special situations going on in her house that she needs his help, but he's not around. He's too busy building his business. She ends up having an affair. And I'll never forget She sat right in this room, and she said, look, what I did was wrong. I give no excuses. But he was not around for 10 years before that. He then became, oh, man, he's in Bible studies. He's meeting with guys. He's a Christian husband. That just haunts me. So she leaves the church because she had the affair. He sticks around because he's the godly husband now. And we see that so often. Again, you can't let 
things go for 10 years. And then at the end say, well, it's her fault or it's his fault because they pulled the trigger with the affair or they left or whatever. I'll never make an excuse for an affair. I will say that sometimes the response or lack of response by husband and wife certainly makes that temptation greater in a relationship. Yeah, without tending the garden, the garden will grow weeds and it'll choke out the plants and the beautiful flowers. And same thing with the marriage, that if it goes untended, the marriage will fail. And whatever is the cause, obviously the affair becomes really a symptom of what is wrong at its foundation. And I think that the commitment is how much work after the I do is to keep that marriage. We were talking about what does a guy need to know? Every guy grows up saying, do I have what it takes to be a man? Do I measure up? Well, a woman grows up saying, am I desirable? Do you delight in me? Will you fight for me? Will you pursue me? So if I become a workaholic and all I care about is building my business, in essence, I'm telling my wife, you're not worthy of fighting for. But Tunch, I got to work all this time because I got to provide for my family. What about that nice house and those cars and and that vacation and all that stuff. See, I'm really working for them. Right, well, and we know that that's the ultimate lie. I mean, I'm building this empire because I desire to build this empire. It's how I keep score or it's what I want out of life. Let's face it, we can live on a lot less than we think we can and there'll be much more fulfillment. What good is having the beautiful house, the beautiful cars, the vacation home if you have just lost the one that you have dreamt to share that with the rest of your life. And think about the impact that it has on your children who now have the emotional shrapnel of a divorce. I mean, you know, as well as I do, when you look into the eyes of kids that come from that home, you see they're injured. They have that look like they've been devastated by the fact that mom and dad are no longer together. And so I always go back to this. Are you willing to fight for your marriage? Are you willing to do what it takes for that commitment? And scripture has a great description of a warrior who is willing to fight for his marriage. And we can use the term which we see in scripture, servant leadership. Right. I want to look at four parts of servant leadership. It comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Mm-hmm. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, nourishing love, satisfying love. Let me read the passage, Tunch, and then I want you to talk about what that type of love looks like. So we're talking about servant leadership here and the four things that describe it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love. What's that look like in real life? You know, the interesting thing about that, Ron, is that's not, hey, this would be a good idea. This is what God has called us. And so... All we need to do is look upon the cross and see that Christ sacrificially hung on that cross for us, even when we didn't deserve that. And so a lot of times a man will say, well, my wife is this way, that way, there's a complaining. And well, that doesn't change the desire for sacrificial love. So it's kind of funny when a lot of times I'll ask a potential husband, are you willing to die for her? And when we think of Are you willing to take the bullet? As men, we go, absolutely. Okay, so are you willing to have a hard day at work after your 12-hour day to come home and listen to what has gone in the life of your wife, or are you stopping 
at the club or are you stopping at a bar or are you coming in and just going downstairs to the family room and turning on ESPN? So one of the ways that servant leadership manifests itself, that sacrificial love, is I'm putting my wife's needs when I come home from work in front of my needs. Instead of going off and playing golf on Saturday morning, I'm hanging out with my wife. And I remember for me, it was sharing love antique stores. So you now put the desires of your wife in front of yours. Now, you and I can use golf as an illustration because we don't play. (laughs) Scott Stanley, a professor at Denver University, he writes a book on heart of commitment. He says, commitment is the choice to give up other choices. I always like that. Commitment in marriage is based on choices on the wedding day and every day after. At times, options not chosen can look pretty attractive. And the way these temptations are handled will affect your ability to be true to your commitment in marriage and to your mate. Commitment is the choices to give up other choices. That's sacrificial love. One of the books that really have a profound impact on me as a husband was The Five Love Languages. You know, I always encourage guys to be a student of your wife. And so what is her love language? And the love languages are active listening personal time. It is acts of service. And when you become a student of your wife and you find out what her love language is, and then you try to meet her where she is, that is sacrificial. It is saying, if my wife's love language is acts of service, then I'm cleaning up the kitchen. That is putting her first if it's just listening. I mean, that was one of the things that I had to learn was how to be a good listener. And when I came home, instead of going to ESPN, because, you know, obviously sports is the great escape for men, I would, listen, being a student of your wife is huge. We're talking about men's issues. We always want to remind women listening, too, that uh, being a student of your husband is critical. And that's why we're encouraging women to listen to these broadcasts, because they need to know the challenges that their husbands are facing so they can be the student that meets the needs of their husband as well. All right, servant leadership, sacrificial love, sanctifying love. Husbands, love your wife, Paul says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. A sanctifying love. What's that mean in servant leadership? Well, it's pretty obvious that the spiritual growth of my bride now becomes my responsibility. Everyone is responsible to God, but it is my responsibility in a sanctifying love to make sure that I encourage her and put her in a position to grow spiritually as well. That it is my responsibility to lead as the husband in devotions, in making sure is my wife in a Bible study? Are we in a couple study? Are we growing together to pray for my wife, to hold on or to pray together for her to hear my prayers for her and how thankful I am to God for her. And so as a result of that, to encourage her to grow spiritually as well. So the guy leading his company will be the first guy to say, buck stops with me. Right. Buck stops with you at home too. Right. You cannot make your wife spiritual, but it's your responsibility to encourage her and allow her right. to do that. So some guys who have a young family to help their wife go to a retreat or have some time in the morning, they need to take care of the kids. They need to do the practical things they need to do to allow their wives to grow spiritually. That's a huge responsibility. And something as simple as saying, hey, honey, you go to this retreat or you go to that Saturday morning Bible study and I'll take care of the kids. And also, I think guys on Sundays, a lot of times are wore out. 
And you want to make sure that even when you don't feel like coming to church, you remember that you have a whole family that you're leading, that you're responsible to. If you're sitting there going, man, I really don't feel like going to church today. Well, that has a trickle-down effect on your wife and on your children. And so really the challenge to enter his courts with praise comes on the husband. Well, leaders don't just do what they feel like doing. Leaders do the positive thing, the needed thing for the people they're leading. And in this case, we're talking to husbands. Right. They're leading their family. Servant leadership, sacrificial love, sanctifying love, nourishing love. Paul says this, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ loved the church. Talk about that nourishing love that we should have as a servant leader. It's kind of funny that you take care of the nourishment. You feed yourself. And so I get this picture of feeding and nourishing my family and feeding and nourishing them through the word of God. So here's the challenge then. I need to be serious about my commitment to God. You know, as you always say, you cannot impart what you do not own. And so if I'm not following hard after Christ, how am I going to nourish my wife and my children? It really challenges me as a man to make sure that not only do I have my time of devotion and prayer with my wife, but I have my time of devotion. It's easy for me to say that I'm going to be this guy, but it's a whole different story for me to live for Christ. And that starts daily with my denying of self, Tozer in one of his books talks about dying to self and what does that look like? And it means putting my desire for the world behind my need and my desire for God. And so when I start pursuing after God and I don't do those things that my flesh wants, I am gonna grow. If I am growing spiritually, then I can't help but impact my wife and my children. So a servant leader, sacrificial love, sanctifying love, nourishing love, and a satisfying love. Ephesians 5, 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that one flesh is not only physical, mm -hmm. but it's emotional and it's spiritual as well. Mm -hmm. Talk about that satisfying love. You know, that's what brings true fulfillment my wife Sharon and I were in youth ministry for many years, and it didn't dawn on me until I heard after the fact that our marriage was a testimony. And until that point in my life, I didn't realize that a marriage is a testimony to God's love and his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness to us and his provision to us. You know, of course, the scripture says it was not good for man to be alone, so I will make him a helpmate. So that marriage has a tremendous impact from a ministry standpoint. I think if we truly understood that, that people look at a godly marriage. I heard someone say, how many people does a good marriage impact? A friend of ours just passed, Ray Neeson, and during the memorial service, hearing their grandchildren talk about the example that their grandma and grandpa were to them, and not only to them, so that marriage has impacted their family, their son and their daughter. And so you see that godly marriage and then that impact on the grandchildren. And not only that, the impact that their marriage had on our church congregation and the community and their Bible study and their small group, the effect that that marriage has is tremendous. So you talk about a satisfying love. What could be more satisfying than that?
I was over at the Neeson's after Ray passed away and we were talking with the family and his daughter said that all the time he would tell her how beautiful she was mm -hmm. and his wife Joanne as well and the satisfaction they had from him always building them up and encouraging them. And they say, you know, look at us, man. We're the two most gorgeous women on the face of the earth. Ray said, yeah. and I think the satisfying love is not just what you do, mm -hmm. but it's what you say. It's how you treat your wife in a way that demonstrates that out of all the women in the world, God chose her just for you, and you're going to honor mm -hmm. his choice. Yeah, and that's a great responsibility because that's a precious gift that yeah. was given to you and to whom much is given, much is expected. Much is expected. There's a passage of scripture, uh, well known to many, mm -hmm. that just sums it up. And I want to read this from the message. Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 13. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. And that's what real commitment is about, isn't it? Love doesn't give up. Keep your commitment for better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and in health, till death us do part. Now, Tunch, you not only know the words, but you've lived it. Your wife, Sharon, passed away over a year ago now, and you went through some challenging times. Talk about some of the things that you guys went through, the challenges to marriage and the richness that you experienced during those times. She battled cancer for eight years, and as we went through those eight years together, she went through five different surgeries. She went through chemo several times, probably a couple hundred radiation treatments. And I think what sticks out at my mind through that time was um, the way we just held on to one another. We held on to the word, and we held on to one another. And one of the things that I remember that Sharon would always say, even when she had the greatest pain and cancer was all in her brain and her spine and started out as breast cancer, she would always say that she had this tremendous faith in God that she said, God will be glorified. He will be glorified in my healing or he will be glorified in my taking. And she was right. And through the course of that, and you were a big part of that, you know, the elders would come and pray over her right before surgery. And to be with her through that and to hold on to her and to be an encourager. And, you know, it was kind of a, a crazy time. It was also a time in my life that it was really hard for me to pray, your will be done, because I was afraid that God's will might be that he would take her. And so I kind of felt like I was in this wrestling match with God holding on to Sharon we always had a great marriage and 30 years of marriage and we dated for five years. We really grew up together and there were tremendous blessings in that. The blessing of our church family rallying around. I mean, the last two years of her life, I don't think we ever cooked a meal in our house. Meals would show up every other night and always for two nights. So we had meals covered throughout the week and people would drop by to pray and to do acts of service for us. And so through that, there was this richness of our lives at that time to see 
God's provision in our lives in a very, very tangible way. And in her hardest pain, I remember she would be in so much pain and she would just be praying and she'd say, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And then she would always pause and she would say, oh, Jesus, how you must have suffered for me. And so through those times, just crying out to God and holding on to him and holding on to each other. It was a very challenging time, but it was also a very rich time in the life of us as a family. I remember many times I asked how you guys are doing, and you would say, it's tough. Many times we just hold each other and pray and cry and talk through it. And at the end of her life, Sharon was in a wheelchair. Right. And I remember you saying, you know, God, I'll push this wheelchair around. As long as I need to. As long as I have to, if you'll just keep her here. And there was that commitment Mm -hmm. to serve her and to do whatever needed to be done to show your love to her. Well, that wasn't hard. I can't take any credit for that. I really can't. I mean, that was not a hard thing for me to do. I loved her. I was trying to hold on to her and was willing to do whatever it took to keep her. And I can't stress this enough. It was not hard. I mean, it was a challenge. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, she was easy to love. And so, uh, obviously, I was willing to do whatever it took to keep her here. Talk to some guys who are going through that same thing. Their wife has cancer. Right. Their wife has MS. Their wife maybe has a chronic illness that is debilitating in some way. And they're saying, man, I don't, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Talk to that guy and remind them of some things that God taught you through that that would help them to stay the course. Well, the number one thing, Ron, is that God is faithful. In our weakness, we find his strength. And that is true. You know, he said to Paul, when Paul was praying to remove the thorn in his flesh, uh, my grace is sufficient. Grace is kind of a funny thing in that it shows up right on time, not prior to when you need it. So if you think, okay, I'm going to need that next week, Lord, because that's when we're going to the surgery. And it's almost like that I had this fear that I wasn't going to be up to the challenge, but God's grace shows up right on time and not when I think I'm going to need it or when I want it. When we were down in Tijuana, Mexico, and after traditional treatments, we were going the non-traditional route, I was willing to do anything. If I thought it would cure her of her cancer, that I was willing to go anywhere. And so I just remember that the Lord would meet me exactly where I was at the given time. When we were down in Tijuana and she got really sick down there, I thought we were going to lose her. And I remember I was yelling and I was out by myself praying. I was going, Lord, we had to come down to Tijuana. Did you have to bring her to Tijuana to take her? Couldn't you take her in Pittsburgh? And you texted me that verse, Exodus 14, 13, I believe, The Lord will fight for you. You need just to be still. Well, as I opened my Bible, I was reading that verse, and I went a few verses prior to that. It was when the Israelites were stuck at the Red Sea, and they're all going, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? And I paused, and I went, oh, my goodness, I'm an Israelite. And the Lord just said, you need to be still. And she had these brain hemorrhages while we were down there because the cancer was all in her brain, and she had these intense headaches. And once again, I started complaining. I was going, Lord, she's suffering. Why does she have to suffer? So I'm going through this conversation with God through this prayer. And I was out walking by myself. And they were keeping her unconscious so that the swelling would go down in her brain. And it was this old Catholic hospital in Tijuana. So I was coming up the stairs and I'm praying and I'm asking God, 
why she has to suffer. And as I round the first landing of the stairs, there is a picture of Jesus praying in the garden at Gethsemane and sweating blood. And the Lord reminded me that he suffered a great deal on my behalf. So the way the Lord just reminded me of his mercy and grace to me, and really at the end, I was having this conversation with God where I was saying I didn't want to watch her pass. Not that I didn't want to be there, but it's hard. And then the Lord reminded me, God the Father, of hearing the cries of Jesus on the cross and watching him. And so I was just reminded of God's mercy and goodness through that all. And then the promise of eternity, because I knew that the moment she left this world, that she was in the presence of the one that loved her the most. As much as the children and I love Sharon, God loves her so much more. And at that moment, she was in the arms of the one she loved dearly as well. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You mentioned God's grace. I've heard it said God is seldom early. Mm -hmm. He's never late. Mm -hmm. He's always right on time. time. And it gives us exactly what we need when we need it. Tunch, I've shared this story before by Robertson McQuilkin. He was a president of Columbia Bible College, and his wife, Muriel, had Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Right at the height of his presidency, he resigned. And he wrote these words. He said, my dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Bible College. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time when she's with me and almost none of the time when I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror that she lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. And then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation at chapel. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. And if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It's the highest honor to care for so wonderful a person. That's what commitment is really about, isn't it? And there's great joy in that commitment. There is a joy of having the privilege of taking care of someone that you love and who has loved you and taking care of you. So I love the way he puts it. As we talk about commitment here, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the emotional need of women. And I just got this email this morning from one of the counselors here at the Bible Chapel. She's talking about social networks and Facebook and all these different social networks. And she says, at one point, I was counseling four different women who had, quote unquote, hooked up either emotionally or physically with another man. Now, a couple things going on there. Women need 
this emotional connection. And men need to be aware of that need right. going back to the point we were talking about earlier that we continually need to date and romance and talk to our life because if a person is starving for emotional connection, they're going to find it right. someplace or another. I want to read this. I ran across this years ago, and it talks about the emotional need that a woman is looking for and where she finds it. This is an old poem. The title of it is An Unfaithful Wife to Her Husband. And guys, I want you to listen to this. Again, an affair is never appropriate, never justified. But sometimes as men, we can do some things where we're not meeting an emotional need of our wives. And again, the temptation is heightened. Right. So listen to this. This is by Ella Wilcox Wheeler, an unfaithful wife to her husband. Brandon and blackened by my own misdeeds, I stand before you not as one who pleads for mercy or forgiveness, but as one after a wrong is done who seeks the why and wherefore. Go with me back to those early years of love and see just where our paths diverged. You must recall your wild pursuit of me, outstripping all competitors and rivals till at last you bound me sure and fast with vow and ring. I was the central thing in all the universe to you just then. Just then for me, there were no other men. I cared only for tasks and pleasures that you shared. Such happy, happy days. You wearied first. I will not say you wearied, but a thirst for conquest and achievement in man's realm left love's ship with no pilot at the helm. The money madness, the keen desire to outstrip others set your heart on fire and to the growing fire went romance and sentiment. Abroad, you are a man of power and parts. Your double dower of brawn and brains gave you a leader's place. At home, you were dull, tired, and commonplace. You housed me, fed me, clothed me. You were kind, but oh, so blind, so blind. You could not, would not see my woman's needs of small attentions. You gave no heed. When I complained of loneliness, you said, a man must think about his daily bread and not waste time in empty social life. He leaves that sort of duty to his wife and pays her bills and lets her have her way and feels she should be satisfied. Each day, our lives that had been one life at the start, farther and farther seemed to drift apart. Dead was the old romance of man and maid. Your talk was all of politics and trade. Your work, your club, your mad pursuits of gold absorbed your thoughts. Your duty kiss fell cold upon my lips. Life lost its zeal, its thrill, until one fateful day when earth seemed very dull, it suddenly grew bright and beautiful. I spoke little. He listened much. There was a tension in his eyes and such a note of comradeship in his low tone, I felt no more alone. There was a kindly interest in his air. He spoke about the way I dressed my hair and praised the gown I wore. It seemed a thousand, thousand years and more since I had been so noticed. Had my ear been used to compliments year after year, if I had heard you speak as this man spoke, I had not been so weak. The innocent beginning of all my sinning was just the woman's craving to be brought into the inner shrine of some man's thought. You held me there as sweetheart and bride, and then as wife, you left me far outside. So far, so far, you could not hear my call. You might, you should, 
have saved me from my fall. I was not bad, just lonely. That was all. Man, I read that and it hits home. Mm -hmm. It's what we've been talking about, that men stop battling for their wives. You know, it sounds like a classic example of passivity and a man comes home and he's passive. And we've talked that that's one of the biggest challenges for men in their marriage. We inherit it through Adam. Adam was right next to Eve when she ate the apple. As protector, as the leader, where was he to say no? And so we look at husbands that come home and it's easy to fall in this trap of, man, I'm tired and I'm not gonna engage my wife and I'm not gonna engage my family. But when I come home, that is when my greatest work really needs to be done to continually pursue my wife, to continually be the warrior, to continually be that knight who is willing to battle. Even the mundane, the big battles, it's almost easy to get up for, but it is the mundane day after day after day, the battle for the heart of my wife. Will you die for your wife? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Will you live for your wife? Hmm. Let me think about That's that. Interesting. It's a great question. Thanks for joining us today on The Journey. Join us next time as we talk about a man and his family. Mm -hmm.